0: Behold our God. In essence, this is what Isaiah was proclaiming throughout his career as a prophet of Yahweh. Furthermore, behold our God means that God is the Yahweh of the Bible, that we look into this scripture, we look into the scriptures to know the God of the universe. He is the creator and he controls history He created Adam and Eve and through them the human race. And because humans have rebelled against their creator, judgment is coming. But God in his mercy has provided a way to avoid his terrible judgment. And so he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, to die for our sins and to offer eternal life for all who would believe. We're looking at Isaiah, and Isaiah is Scripture. It's holy Scripture. It's inspired by God, and we look into our Old Testaments to find the foundation of the New Testament. My desire so often you know is to open the New Testament because it's written to the church and it's just written directly to us. The application is so much easier, but we need to be students of all of scripture. We need to declare the the whole counsel of God. Isaiah's mission was to declare the judgment of Yahweh. Now Yahweh is also known as Jehovah. He's known as God, Elohim. He's sometimes called the Mighty One, God Almighty. But Yahweh is his personal name, the self-existent one, the the one who says, I am that I am. Well, Isaiah's mission was to declare the judgment of Yahweh against Judah until they would repent. If you take a moment and think, you know, we're looking today at Isaiah 24 and 25. The first 12 chapters of Isaiah are prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And there's some great things in there. Remember the prophecy about the Messiah, the virgin birth, Uh, you know, the names of the Lord, uh, that he would be uh, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But then we move to the next section, chapters 13 to 23. We just completed. And those were prophecies about the nations. And we kind of struggled our way through those. We were looking at all these nations and these hard names, and we're looking at all these places that we're not familiar with, and And what God was saying about all these nations, but what we drew from that was that God cares about all people. He cares about our nation, and he cares about you personally. And now we come to another section, beginning in chapter 24. It's a short section. It's only four chapters. It has been called Isaiah's Shorter Apocalypse. And when you hear the word apocalypse, what comes to your mind? Well, they make movies about, you know, words like that. Apocalypse simply means the revelation. But we connect the revelation with end time events and maybe the end of the world, Armageddon, you know, the battle that's described in in the apocalypse of of Jesus. But it, it means revelation. But Bible scholars call Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27 the little apocalypse because it's comparable to the book of Revelation. And I hope to, to see some comparisons as we look at it today. I really wanted to cover chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27 in one sermon. I thought, you know, I can do this. And then after working on it a while, I thought, I can't do this. So we're just gonna look at two chapters. Isaiah made an announcement, did you catch it? In chapter 25, verse nine? It serves as a summary, really, for the whole book. Let's look at that verse, Isaiah 25, nine. It will be said on that day, what day? The day Jesus sets up his kingdom, the day of the Lord leading into the kingdom. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's going to be said on that day. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, that's going to be said. Here's our God. We're going to see Jesus, human Jesus, the God-man. And beloved, he is all that you can get. He's all that you can take. You can't comprehend the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all that he is, the one who's immense, who has no boundaries, has no beginning or end. His thoughts are unfathomable. And and so we're gonna see Jesus. And we're gonna say, here's our God. We've been waiting for this. That's what's gonna happen. And that's what Isaiah is telling Judah. That t- the day's going to come. It's off in the future. And you know, we recognize God's not bothered by time. Time is nothing to him. He created time. But he moves around in time all, the, all, all that he wants. He can go back and forward and in the middle because time has no boundaries to him. But it does for us. And we struggle. Come on, Lord. How long? Come on. You know, Isaiah said, how long do I gotta do this? You do it until it's done, that's how long, Isaiah. You do it until there's nobody left. Wow, What what an assignment. And we're here today saying, Lord, come on, how long? Come on, Lord. He's not bothered by that. Isaiah pointed Judah to her God. And today, Isaiah, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is pointing you and me to our God. He is the same God, there's only one. Yahweh, the Creator, who has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's difficult for us to get that. How can He be three persons and one God? Is He three personalities? No, He's three persons, but He's one. Oh, this is so hard but he's the one who's revealed himself in the world as our Lord Jesus Christ and so today this is what I'm after in the Bible God has revealed his future judgment through prophecy and in addition God has revealed his future kingdom and so this section is called the little apocalypse because we're gonna see something about the tribulation in chapter 24 and something about the beginning of the setting up of the kingdom in chapter 25. Later on, in <clears throat> the next couple chapters, we're going to go back and look at the coming of the Lord and his kingdom again. But for today, I have two points. You think I can make it through two points in a sermon? Here we go. Number one, our God has a plan to judge the whole earth. Now, isn't this fascinating? after all the messages we've had from Isaiah. Another comment, another point, another statement about judgment, yes. Our God has a plan to judge the whole earth, Isaiah 24. And then secondly, our God has a plan to establish his kingdom over the earth. And you know, you might be here saying, well, pastor, we know this, we've heard this before, but I I want you to think for a moment, the people of Judah had not heard this before. They were not getting this. They were not understanding that their God was the God of the whole world, in the sense that he actually cared about the whole world. They thought he just cared about them. And they basically said, in so many words, let everybody else go to hell. That's how the the mindset of the people of, of Judah and Israel were. God, you're our God. We know you're the only true God, but we don't care about these other people. Would you just get rid of them? And God said, no. In fact, I'm gonna save them. I'm gonna save many of them. And so, not only did they think, we would just like to have our own special little kingdom here and let everybody else leave us alone, God says, no, my kingdom's gonna be the whole earth. I'm gonna rule everything and the nations are gonna come. And that bizarre statement that we saw in chapter 19, that Assyria and Egypt and Israel are gonna be buddies, they're gonna be God's children, they're all gonna fit into the kingdom together? For the Jewish mind that's like, this is absurd. Who is saying this? God is. And so we look together at Isaiah 24. Now we haven't read it yet. We read 25. <clears throat> 24 is a little bit longer. But we see this that our God has a plan to judge the whole earth. So let's start with this first few verses. Isaiah 24, one, it says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, So with the debtor, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Now this this is something to think about. This is Isaiah saying this somewhere around 712 BC, 700 years before Christ. And he's telling the people of Judah, there's coming a day when the whole earth is going to be made desolate. Now, can you see why this is called the Little Apocalypse? Because if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that the most of the book of Revelation is devoted to the destruction of the surface of the earth. It starts in Revelation 6 and goes all the way through Revelation 19. There are three main series of judgments that are revealed that Jesus himself showed John and said this is what's gonna happen in the end of time. First there was the the seal judgments, then there were the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. And in between the declaration of all that stuff, there was many other interesting things that comes out in the book of Revelation about what's gonna happen in the end times. Well here, this text begins with, the Lord's gonna empty the earth and he's gonna twist its surface. Does that sound normal? Does that sound encouraging? Does that sound like something that you would like to experience? No, it doesn't, does it? By the way, the word for earth, that's used there in verse one, can also be translated land. Earth and land are the same meaning in Hebrew. It's the word Eretz, Eretz. But the context determines whether we're talking about the land of Israel or the earth, all the land of the planet. And as you read this chapter, you come away with, oh, this isn't just Israel. This is the whole world. And that's why it's translated 18 times in this chapter as the earth. This word is used again and again and again so that you can't miss the idea that God's going to do something with this earth. Now, I know there's a lot of people that are worried about our planet and all the pollution and all the bad stuff that human beings do, and we should be, people who are conservative and care about clean water and clean air, we should be caring about that. You can take those things a little too far sometimes. We we are to be I mean, we're commissioned by the Lord to take care of the earth. We should be kind to animals. Now, we don't worship animals. I remember, uh, you know, I come up with things I think, should I really say this or not, but <laughs> why do I do that to myself? But I remember one Sunday morning, years and years ago, I wasn't here, this dear lady the church came up to me with tears in her eyes. I'm getting ready to go preach, you know, this is like five minutes before the service. It happens to me sometimes. And she says, Pastor, I'm really concerned. And the tears are running down her eye, and I'm like, oh man, what's going on? She says, I was just listening to a documentary about how pigs are mistreated. (laughs) I was like, excuse me? Pigs, you know, animals, pigs, they're mistreated by farmers. I said, oh, yeah, well, I, I could, well, I could imagine that. Well, what are we going to do about it? I'm like, I'm going to go preach in a minute. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do about the pigs, but, but I mean, seriously, we should be concerned about pigs. I mean, I was talking to you about going in the chicken coop, you know, on this farm of our friends and. I never saw thousands of chickens all stuck together like that before, and maybe, you know, maybe that's not the best thing. Yeah, we should be concerned about things like that. But we can't solve all those problems of the world, you know? And we need to realize that God is in control of the world. We are to be kind to, be animal, to, to, kind to animals, and we should always be humane toward animals. I mean, God teaches that. I mean, we should be the picture of kindness, but don't make that your life goal to save the pigs, okay? I mean, we've gotta keep a balance here. What's the main thing? Now, the scripture teaches there's coming a time when God's going to renew the earth, you know? I mean, Peter said God's gonna destroy the earth with fire. Now remember when God destroyed the surface of the earth with water in Noah's flood, and then he gave the promise that he would never do that again. And he won't, because he already knew the next time he's not gonna use water, he's gonna use fire. And he's gonna redo the surface of the earth and prepare it for the eternal state. The good news is God's gonna fix things The bad news is, those that are on the earth at the very end time are going to experience horrible things. The judgment of the entire earth is an important theme in scripture. It's important in the prophets. Jesus referred to this end time, ultimate judgment time in Matthew 24, 9 and verse 21. He called it the great tribulation. Revelation as I said, chapter 6 through 19 are devoted to the same subject. God's gonna pour out his wrath on the earth. And really, there's a couple of purposes that he's got. Number one, he's going to cleanse for himself the people of Israel and call them to himself as a nation. That doesn't mean every Jewish person is gonna be saved. But at that time, all Israel will be saved in the sense that they will come to the Lord massively as a nation. That's one of his purposes. The second purpose for God to destroy the earth is to punish the Gentile nations who persecuted his people. What does that say to us about our relationship to Israel? God cares about Israel and we should too. And then the third purpose of why he's going to destroy the earth is because of all the mess that we've made out of it. He's going to fix it and cleanse it and make it perfect. He's gonna return it to what it once was. Can you imagine getting to see what the Garden of Eden was actually like? You're gonna get to. The tree of life that was there in the garden appears in the eternal state in the new Jerusalem, the new everything at the end of the book of Revelation. So, So there's purposes here. And so what goes on in this chapter Isaiah prophesies that the Lord's going to empty the earth. He's going to make it desolate. And, you know, you read here these first six verses, uh, you know, notice uh, verse four The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they are transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. When is this going to happen? Well, according to the book of Revelation, during the tribulation time. According to what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, there's going to be a time of great tribulation. And so, at the end of time, and so... This wasn't just revealed in the New Testament. It's taught in the prophets, and here's one of the places that it's taught. We read how these various um, classes of people, as it said in verse two, the people and the priest, the slave and the master, the maid and the mistress. Doesn't matter what rank or class of people, all people groups, doesn't matter what your economic distinctions are, buyer, seller, lender, borrower, doesn't matter, all people. And the kings to the lowest ranking person are going to suffer if they're alive on earth when this happens. Now, during the time of this worldwide judgment, all the joy of unbelievers will be replaced with mourning. Now, you know, with this as a backdrop, and I'm not gonna take much time on this, remember when the apostle Paul You remember one of the first things that the Apostle Paul taught? Well, the first thing that he taught was getting the gospel straight about Jew and Gentile in the book of Galatians. That was his first book that he wrote, or first letter. But the second letter, you know what it was? second thing that the Apostle Paul wrote was 1 Thessalonians, and it was all about the coming of the Lord, and it includes the rapture of the church. Because he was teaching the people You know, Jesus could come any moment. He was teaching imminence, because Jesus said, nobody knows the time, therefore be also ready for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. That's Matthew 24, 44. Paul taught, watch for Jesus to come. We don't know when he's coming, but be ready. But the good news is when he comes, he's going to take his people out. And then he wrote 2 Thessalonians to explain about the day of the Lord and the man of sin and what's going to happen during the tribulation period. Now that's not my main lesson today, but I don't want you to miss that because the backdrop here is God speaking through Isaiah to Judah, specifically how this relates to Israel in their unbelief. And the unbelievers are not gonna be taken out, and Isaiah's talking to people who don't believe. And what he does say is, if you're here when this happens, all joy will be removed. Notice verse 7. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Now, remember, this is poetry. This is prophecy. This isn't narrative. This isn't written in a way that, you know, I really like narrative and I love Paul's epistles because they're just so straightforward, you know? I love that. Poetry, not so much, you know, but Lord, I know you gave us a lot of poetry here, and you realize Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. I mean, even if you knew Hebrew, it doesn't rhyme. Okay? (laughs) They have poetry to them is saying things in colorful ways and repeating yourself constantly and having crossover ideas going back and forth. That's poetry. And I kind of like the way, at least the ESV and some other versions space out the text to show you that it's poetry. Have you noticed that? Now some Bibles don't. They just all, they don't waste any space, don't waste any paper, and they pack all the words in there. That's okay too, but I like, it helps you to know when there's poetry, okay? So poetry means, oh, this is gonna be hard to understand. (laughs) That's what it means to me. Oh, it's gonna be hard to understand. I mean, even the Psalms, I love the Psalms, but you have gotta admit, some of them are hard to understand because there are these emotional feelings and repeating and all this kind of thing. I gotta stop saying that. I'm saying it every Sunday, but I can't help it. I want you to, when you approach the scripture, to have a handle on it, okay? And, and so what he's saying so far is, there's a time of worldwide judgment coming and all the joy's gonna be taken away. And those that are left here, those that are here, are going to suffer, and it's gonna be terrible. Notice verse 12, it says desolation is left in the city, the gates are battered into ruins, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. You know, when they would harvest, they would would literally shake those olive trees to try to get all the olives to fall off. You know, you get tired of picking them after a while, You know, and you shake the tree. You know, I spent 14 years in Florida in the midst of citrus. And I found out, man, you can shake some trees and get some fruit off of those. We hadn't, no, and it was my own fruit. I wasn't stealing it, by the way. <laughs> but here's another short aside, but one of the men of our church grew up in the town there. And it used to be that kids could go and pick a couple of oranges, you know, off somebody's tree and nobody said anything. Well, this is like a 40-year-old man, and he decided to go pick some oranges where he used to, and the sheriff came and arrested him and took him to jail. He was one of the men of my church. Like, what did you do that you're in jail, Doug? His name was Doug, by the way. And Doug said, I was picking some oranges that weren't mine. I'm like, oh man, are you serious? Yep, gotta pay a fine. Okay, why did I tell you that? I forget. Oh, I know, shaking the tree, you know, to get the fruit off of it. And, and that's what he's saying is gonna to happen to this world. Now, suddenly, when you come to verse 14, there's a huge contrast. We just heard all the joy is taken away, everything's mourning, and then you come to verse 14. R- look at this. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed with betrayal, the traitors have betrayed." Okay, here we go with poetry again, right? You gotta love it. But when you see this contrast of all the joy is gone and then all of a sudden, and the voices are gonna sing for joy, this has gotta be somebody else, right? This isn't what he was, who he was just talking about. And as you look closely, this is talking about the remnant of believers, the ones who are spread out here and there, and I wish they hadn't translated it with the words west and east, because if you look in the uh, the notes, you know it's from the sea and in the realm of light or with the fires, and so they were trying to help us out that those areas from the sea and the other area is east and west. But it doesn't say east and west. That's my point. It's trying to. It's making some. Uh, In addition to translating, it's trying to help us to explain it. But the point of this section is there will be joy and praise from believers. And during the tribulation period, according to the book of Revelation, many people will be saved. And they're known as tribulation saints. We also read that there will be praise up in heaven, according to Revelation 7, 9 to 12, that all of a sudden out of heaven comes praise. And you almost wonder, could that be referring to that? But the text seems to make it clear it's believers who are still on the earth. They're the minority. They're not the main ones that are in mourning. Verse 17 then goes right back to the idea of the desolation. And so you've got these couple verses of believers will find some joy and help, but verse 17 goes right back to the unbelievers. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken, The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth, on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed where the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. What do you make of this section? <clears throat> the desolation of the earth will continue until the Lord completes it. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are a couple of things that stand out about verses 17 to 23. First of all, the word earth is used eight times in seven verses. And so there is no doubt we're talking about this worldwide event that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 that the book of Revelation talks about. And that's why we really look at Isaiah 24 as a backdrop prophecy about the tribulation period. It just speaks of it again and again about its desolation, explaining it in in colorful terms and repeating again and again. But uh, a couple of things that I wanted to point out, Isaiah 24 and verse 22 sounds so much like Revelation 20. Notice what it says in verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit they will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. You have this picture of people running for their lives trying to escape the judgment. Remember back in Revelation 6 there'll be people that will say to the mountains, fall on us. They go and hide in the caves because they're trying to get away from the judgment of God and they can't find anywhere to go. You get that same kind of feeling as you read through this poetic description of destruction and fear and and where um, in verse 22, the bottomless pit uh, is kind of reminded, we're reminded of it when, when it talks about prisoners in a pit. Remember in Revelation 20, Satan is confined for a thousand years in the bottomless pit and uh, Another thing that stands out in this passage is verse 23, where it says, the moon and the sun, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. Again, this is poetry, right? This isn't narrative. So when the moon is confounded, what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, the moon woke up one morning and didn't know what day it was or something. No, something's wrong with the moon. And when the sun is ashamed, what do you think the sun is doing? It's not shining, because that's what the sun does. And so this fits, again, perfectly with Revelation 6, the sixth seal, it says the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. In Joel 2.10, it says the same thing, the sun and the moon are darkened. And get this, Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, right before he returns in the cloud, he says, right before the Son of Man returns in the cloud, guess what's gonna happen? The sun and the moon will be darkened. You can read about it in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, the sun and the moon will be darkened and then right after that, the Son of Man will appear in the clouds. And so you see how this is a picture of the tribulation period in poetic form of what God is going to do. What do we take away from this? Well, the Lord has determined that the world must experience judgment in a dramatic and harsh way in order f- to show the reality that sin brings death. You know, we're looking around at the world today. You, you turn on the news, we were talking about this last time, you know, Russia's out there, and Ukraine, and, and everybody's all up, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm David, son of Mel, but I'm not a uh, a prophet, okay, but something's gonna happen. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe Russia backs off. But you know, whenever I read, whenever I watch Russia doing anything, I can't help but think about Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. You know, the, the nation from the north, and, you know, you get a map and get a, a ruler and lay it on, in Jerusalem, in Israel, and what is directly north? Russia. And remember, I got to go there. And I got to teach those pastors the book of Revelation of all things. And of course, they asked me at the end, what do you think about Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39? And with fear and trepidation, I said, I think it refers to Russia. And they, and they all said, you're right. And they're Russian pastors. You know? Someday, I don't know when, Could be 50 years from now, could be 100 years from now. I don't know, but someday Russia is going to attempt to invade Israel and God is gonna destroy them with hail and a dramatic supernatural thing from heaven. And that's gonna play into all this stuff that we're talking about right here. So, you see, what I'm trying to say is, the current events and the way the world is right now and scripture go together because God, God talks about Russia. And I'm, you've heard me say it so many times, but there's never ever a day ever in the news, in the world news that Israel's name is not mentioned. Isn't that interesting? You, you try to find a day, anytime, time, just find one day that Israel's not mentioned in the news, then let me know. Because it never happens. Why? Because God has his focus on that, and Israel's always going to be in the news. And that's why the word of God is so meaningful and so powerful. Well, we've still got chapter 25. Oh, that's great. (laughs) But it's only 12 verses. And really, it is it's not as difficult as what we just went through. But what I want you to see secondly is that our God has a plan to establish his kingdom. And see if you catch this, how it comes out. Now we read this, but I I wanna see verse one again. Oh Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name for you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You might underline that, plans, formed of old, faithful, and sure. Everything that's happening in the world right now, whether it's current events or what's gonna happen in the future, history that's already happened, it's all part of God's plan. And, he, and he's telling Isaiah 700 years before Christ, I've got this, I've laid this out, and this is what's gonna happen. And someday there's coming a day where I'm going to twist the surface of the earth with earthquakes and everything else. But also, the good news is, I'm going to set up my kingdom. Now before that happens, notice verse two, for you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. What city are we talking about? Well class, think about this for a moment. We just went through chapters 13 through 23. What was the main city that came up in that section? Anybody wanna take a guess? It starts with a B. Babylon, chapters 13 and 14, comes up again in chapter 21. We hit on it last week in chapter 23, Babylon. And Tyre is like Babylon in that it's a Gentile commercial center. And so in the larger context, as well as the immediate context, this is talking about Babylon, okay? God has a sovereign plan and this is going to prove that he is righteous and just, that he's gracious and merciful and that the words of praise at the beginning of this passage are a reminder that he has a plan. Now the nations are going to be responding in humility. Babylon and all the cities like it that stand in rebellion against God, they're going to be piled up in a heap of ruins. And verse 3 says, Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you've been a stronghold to the poor, stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter in the time of storm. Here this passage points out the poor and needy are going to find protection from the Lord. Why, because he's going to set up his kingdom. And here it comes in verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. You see that? Now when you see on this mountain, what you should immediately think is kingdom. What mountain? Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where Jesus, The second David is going to come and set up his kingdom. And so when you read on this mountain, you think Zion, kingdom. And he says, it's going to be for all people. And what's he going to do? He's going to make a huge feast. It's going to be a celebration. And it's going to be a celebration, celebrating two things. One is the fear of death. Death is going to be swallowed up in victory, by the way, this is the verse from which the Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when he says, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is the thought behind Paul's teaching there. It goes on to say um, in verse seven, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. Well, what's the covering or the veil? Well, the good news is it's not a face mask. It's the veil of death is going to be removed, the shroud of death. And also the veil that covers up the eyes of the unbelievers. So the Lord's going to swallow up death forever. And notice what he says next. "...and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." Again, Revelation 7:17 7, says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He already said that back here in Isaiah. He's going to swallow up death, and Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to wipe away every tear. John writes that in Revelation 7, 17. The long-awaited salvation of the Lord then will become a reality for those who survive that horrible situation. We believers in Christ will already be with the Lord. We are not going to see this tribulation period. But verse 9 says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, to reference 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, the dead in Christ will rise first, will be caught up, meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then when the Lord returns, according to Revelation 19, he's going to come on a white horse and he's going to bring all the saints with him. It's going to be some awesome time, and you and I are going to experience that. Just realize if Jesus would come tonight, there's a seven-year tribulation coming up, and we're seven years away from the kingdom and we're gonna rule and reign with Christ in glorified bodies over people in their mortal bodies who will enter the kingdom that way. It's amazing to think about. This verse nine is, it could be the key verse of the whole book. Behold our God. Behold this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the message. And beloved, this is our message. You see, you don't have to turn to the New Testament to get the gospel, because it's right there. What did the apostles preach? They preached Isaiah and all these passages as then they wrote the New Testament. He goes on to say that the hand of the Lord will be on this mountain in verse 10. He mentions Moab being trampled down. And you know, Moab is just representative of those nations that we just went through in chapters 13 to 23, the nations of rebellion against God. And you know, Moab's gonna continue to rebel like some of them when it says in verse 11, he will spread out his hands in the midst of it. It's kind of an ugly verse, but Moab who is trampled down like a dunghill is gonna keep swimming in it, trying to rebel against God. But what God will do, the middle of verse 11, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down lay low, cast to the ground and the dust. In other words, the Lord's going to bring his enemies down. This is a reminder of post-millennial rebellion. Again, that's described in Revelation 20. Have you ever read Revelation 20? Have you? Have you? I mean, have you re- if you haven't read it, there's so much packed into that chapter. But, you know, here, the chapter begins with Satan being put in custody in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. And it says a thousand years six times in that passage. You kind of get the feeling like he wants us to know it's a thousand years. And then the Lord's going to rule and reign over people who are still sinners. That means people enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies. But we who know the Lord will be reigning with them in our glorified bodies. And then at the end of the thousand years, what happens? Satan is loosed, and he causes a rebellion. And crazy enough, there's people that are gonna rebel against Jesus after living through, you know, very few people are gonna die for that thousand years. People are gonna live long lives like like the patriarchs did. Adam lived 930, Methuselah 969. Probably somebody's gonna make 1,000. Wouldn't that be awesome? In their mortal body. We're not gonna worry about it. But people are gonna rebel, and Satan's gonna have a short rebellion. He's gonna put it down, and then guess what happens? Satan gets cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already are, according to that text. And then Revelation 20 moves right to the great white throne judgment. You need to read it. Revelation 20, it's an amazing passage. The things that are said in that passage are like, wow, kingdom, Satan bound, Satan released, rebellion again, what? And then the final judgment of unbelief. Can you see why this is called the little apocalypse? And, of course, we still have two more chapters. Well, what have we said today? The good news is I'm ready to stop. So uh, we said that our God has a plan to judge the whole earth, and he also has a plan to establish his kingdom. And that's good news. We're going to be in his kingdom. By the way, how do you get in his kingdom? What did Jesus say? You must be what? Born again. If you're not born again, you'll never enter my kingdom. That's what he said in John chapter 3. Here's some principles from the prophet that I want you to take with you. Number one, whenever we're disturbed by current events in the world, we can take comfort in God's sovereign plan. Remember at the beginning of chapter 25, it says he has a plan of old, faithful and true. So what's happening today in the border of Ukraine? God's got this. Secondly, we must not harbor a fatalistic outlook on the world because the Bible prophesies horrible end time judgment. You know, there's times where we're tempted to go, well, you know, God's gonna clean it up anyway, who cares? No, don't be like that. We do not know God's timing. So we should care about the pigs, right? Number three, we should not ignore the study of end time events even though some details are unclear. And you know, there is a real movement among Christians right now to just stay away from the book of Revelation. I don't get this. I'm not gonna do it. There are men that I respect that say, you know, it's too controversial and it's hard and people get confused. I don't care. God wants us to know his word. Number four, Isaiah is inspired scripture that deserves our attention. This is, this is my mantra every week. Lord, I know this is inspired. <laughs> Help me get through this. Help me to understand it. It's worthy of our study. And finally, the King is coming, and so is his kingdom. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let us live our lives believing that Jesus will come again. And so, your job and my job, be ready. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. And Lord, again, We barely scratch the surface of all that's there. But I pray that the truth of your word will stick in our minds and that we'll have a desire to serve and please you. We pray in Jesus' name.